This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Historic Souvenirs presents A Cyclist's Intrepid Journeys Adapted from his book Pedal Power Roy Sinclair and his partner Harlequo Whose homelands Japan Go cycling in the British Isles 14 years ago On holiday in Cornwall's well-known Penwith Peninsula To meet the local folk Sleepless nights by firelight The stranger in this town Goodbye talking long and singing songs I have laid my loneliness down So long descend with peaceful friends There is no richer wine We're peddling past places presumably well-known to my predecessors, quaint villages of St. Just and Trewellard, not far from Land's End, where our British bike ride begins. On my mother's side of the Thomas family, it seems her people aren't short of cash. I'd imagine them as smugglers or pirates, once flourishing Cornish businesses bringing wealth to Cornwall's black market. It's the consequence of high government excises on imported luxury goods, particularly tobacco, brandy, and exotic perfume. All these years later, we take a quiet, narrow country road to spin mile after mile in picturesque countryside. They cling to miles, not kilometres, something which lies in New Zealand's past. Making continual mental conversions keeps my brain nimble. How to better their position exercises the thinking of a Cornish couple who dream of prospects of emigrating to Australia to mine its lucrative gold deposits. I ponder, why would William Thomas and his four sons risk a voyage leaving the rest of the family at St. Just on the promise of reuniting the family once he had found his feet in Australia? Did they know how different is the lie of the land on Bendigo Goldfield? In 1854, the year they disembarked in Australia, William Thomas has a lucky strike, yielding a return of £1,000. Within seven years, he and the lads acquire the small fortune of £15,000 so they can afford to send word for mother and children to join the menfolk and reunite the whole Thomas family again. Mrs Thomas, however suffers a lot in the heat of Australia, a landscape parched, dusty, desolate. 
She pleads for the family to move somewhere green and cool other than to face the long voyage home to Cornwall. William Thomas heeds his wife's plea. They hear about the Parker Brothers' discovery of gold in central Otago and resolve to venture again into the unknown, trusting to luck. One of the sons, George, marries an Australian lass in the New Zealand goldfield town of Naseby. Several years later, while George prospects for gold in the remote and rugged terrain at Nenthorn, he plucks a gold nugget from amid the rock. On his return home, it's to an even greater treasure that awaits him, their daughter born in his absence just as he discovers that gold. The place yielding that gold is preserved in their daughter's name, Christina Nanthorn Thomas, my grandmother. For me, this is a journey of ancestral discovery. My partner Harlico helped pitch our tent for the first time in Britain. It's the twilight of this balmy summer's day in a wonderful seaside resort and fishing village of St. Ives, Cornwall. We explore the town, scraping together a meal from a convenience store. There is a Mediterranean flair to the many houses in pale shades, the ochre-tinted buildings. Such a delightful setting foils any chance of an early getaway tomorrow morning. My feeling secure in the knowledge that my roots are here on the southwest tip of England. I wake only once during the night. British Railways posters used to promote St. Ives as the English Riviera reached by rail from Penzance on a branch line of the Great Western Railway, adding the ring of reality to its advertising St. Ives as a subtropical destination. Their posters portray it as having palms a symbol of the region. Our cycling takes us past properties featuring the iconic palm Cordeline Australis to cite its scientific name. Its botanic links are to the tree lily family. It is, in fact, not a palm, though still commonly called that. Yet we see in Cornwall fishing villages and on tourists' t-shirts as a motif, the ubiquitous palm tree. New Zealanders know it as the cabbage tree, or tikoka, which translates as footprints in the landscape. Growing naturally best in the cool region of the South Island, Cabbage trees are now a striking botanic feature of Britain's southwest landscape. A New Zealander, Mr. Pottage, 
introduced to Cornwall the so-called cabbage tree, reminding wounded World War I servicemen recuperating at Kiwi's Rehabilitation Centre in Torquay of home. The locals like its spiky leaf, the distinctive large creamy petals flowering in bunches in early summer, so they appropriate the species as if their own. Soon it's common all over Cornwall. It takes more courage than mine to try to tell them it's actually a New Zealand native species. They won't hear of it. In Captain Cook's days, he recognises the medicinal value of the plant he calls the cabbage tree may prevent scurvy among his crew through imbibing vitamin C in a tincture boiled from its inner leaves. Plantings at Torquay are fine specimens known in Devon as the Torquay Palms. A tourism board converts the cabbage tree into a logo depicting the region as being a continental kind of destination. There's more to remind New Zealanders of home as we cycle farther north. The hills of Cornwall are like cycling on Banks Peninsula near Christchurch. From the stiff climbs along the coast to the stunning outlooks over ocean that surrounds both countries. Similarities abound. We're seeing trees, grass, farm animals, even architecture of Britain replicated on the other side of earth. Even the celebrated Cornish pastries cooked in New Zealand by Cornish miners migrating in search of mining opportunity Their pastry surely evolved to sustain a Cornish tin miner through his gruelling workday underground. Old photographs show tin miners with their pastries at crust time. The same would be true of farmers, but not of fishermen, strangely, as some believe it brings bad luck. Other local folklore tells how the devil fears to cross over the River Tamar into northern Cornwall for fear of becoming fill for a Cornish pastry. That's plausible as Haruko, keen to fully embrace British culture, tackles the huge pastry at Land's End. It's served in a paper bag printed with the famous Land's End sign. Eager to savour it, she eats almost with glee this novel delight. At first bite, it seems Harlico's face is all but hidden by the copious Cornish delicacy. The ingredients of the definitive Cornish authentic pastry are debatable, but this much is agreed. The chosen ingredients, folded over into a semicircle, measure as much as twenty centimetres across, trapping the delectable, tasty contents. In 1985, a group of Falmouth bakers make a world-record Cornish pastry of nearly 10 metres length. Nutritious or not, it certainly keeps the devil north of Tamar River that divides Cornwall and Devon. The Cornish pastry would never do for a Japanese diet. For a start, it's encased in thick, Fatty pastry. The inside is thick diced meat and onions with potato and swede, which the Cornish call turnip, a winter crop closely related to the Swedish turnip. On tasting pastry, which is traditionally soaked in lard or vegetable fat, expressions on Harlika's face are a treat. 
a paper bag in which it sells, has the image of Land's End's famous sign, and at the bottom of the grease-stained bag is a message. Conservation is all part of the fun, the last great adventure. Cornish pastry may do little for the conservation of human stomach and arteries, but serves well as a symbol of Cornwall, along with the New Zealand cabbage tree. soon into the stride of bicycle travel, typically cycling at least 50 kilometres in a morning and a little less in the afternoon if we can't resist stopping at tempting pubs, tiny narrow-gauge railway museums, or become lost. As day ends, our aim is to track down a camping ground in which to wash away the sweat in a cool shower in Britain, the tempo is rising as the imminent kick-off in Germany of the 2006 FIFA World Cup stimulates speculation. England has high hopes. Obviously, with the nation's support, hardly a car goes past without the flag of England fluttering the cross of St. George on both sides. Hopefully, their sporting fervour will inject the energy and encouragement for us to pedal harder in our own modest endeavours. Alas, we find ourselves fascinated to visit a decidedly eccentric British cycling museum in the old railway station of Camelford Village, a 700-foot climb from popular surf beaches on the coast of North Cornwall. Camelford is close to the mythical base for King Arthur's legend on one of the highest landmarks of Cornwall, perfect for an exhibition of cycles through the ages. Even a quadricycle from 1870. British Cycling Museum's exhibits are all historic, acquired by owners John and Sue Middleton over decades as their private collection. John reckons there's a big enough range to inspire everyone's memories of childhood. 400 cycles displayed. The couple also collected as many enamel cycle advertising signs, including nostalgic slogans like, Mummy, I want a rally for my birthday. Admirers spend all day looking at the exhibits. Harlequins in her element, saying, It's like being inside a dark movie. She's a horror movie devotee. It's a spooky horror show for cyclists. Coming from outside, as our eyes adjust, we see in the eerie lighting life-sized black-attired models of cyclists mounted on machines representing every phase of industry, from veteran tricycle to two-wheelers of today. John and I met on bikes, says Sue from somewhere in the rafters of the historic Victorian railway station come strains of that well-known song. Daisy, Daisy, give me your I'm crazy, oh, for the 
money, rings it up on a veteran till, filling much of the original rail ticket booth sales aperture, adopted as the Cycle Museum's reception desk. Sue points to a photograph of her husband-to-be, riding a penny farthing. He's dressed in period costume and raising funds for the Samaritans. Another photo shows Sue on a veteran tricycle. An old photo illustrates that where we stand was the once busy Camelford rail station, until Dr. Richard Beeching axes almost a third of the British rail network in a damning report on the economics of running so many branch lines and rail stations in the 1960s. Camelford rail station is one of 2,000 to go, destined to be reincarnated as the museum. It exhibits a rare failure of a prototype by Sir Clive Sinclair, known as the inventor of the pocket calculator, digital watch and portable television set. When his recumbent pedal and motor-powered cycle advances the answer to London's traffic congestion, Sir Clive's genius goes unsung. The recumbent never really catches on. Though the science makes sense, Less energy is required to pedal against the reduced wind profile. Nevertheless, in the British Railways Museum, his 1980s invention fits beside such famous bicycles as roadsters, folding bikes, and the chopper. A display recreates the traditional type of workshop with tools and jigs, making the point, overcrowded workshops are not pleasant or profitable places to work in. A window near the workbench is the most efficient lighting. It's a very British form of inscription. Predictably, 
we find an array of ancient bicycle lamps, bits and pieces. Yet, amazingly, we find on display the only surviving center cycle of the 1882 manufacturer for the Hen and Chickens Post Office. The inventor, Edward Burston from Horsham, made 20, but the post office found them impracticable and so scrapped the rest. This sole machine, showing a lifelike, uniformed postman with a cat sleeping on one of the baskets, is a unique example of a large center wheel that is balanced either end with a pair of smaller wheels. Even in early days of cycling, thieves would be busy making off on bicycles left untended. Ha ha ha! But this will come as a surprise. On propping up the bicycle, the owner presses a catch hidden under its seat. Its design is to deter an unsuspecting thief with a nasty spike that pops up through a groove in what looks like a standard Brooks cycle saddle. The rest is left to the imagination. It's a painted design, but never produced for sale. The museum's model comes from the television program Patently Obvious. The museum preserves memories of cycling events. There's the Tour de France. Five times winner Eddie Merckx is remembered among the memorabilia, and a British Olympian cyclist Chris Boardman from the 1990s. Tragically, also the news headlines of 1967. Tony Simpson dies in Tour de France. Heat kills cycling ace. Collecting so much sparks memories of when humans developed the powers of locomotion to a fine art, with no more than muscle and a light transportable machine. Museum owner Sue Middleton has no personal ambition of doing what thousands are achieving each year, going from Land's End to John O'Groats in Scotland. Yet she's so well informed from the frequent visits to the museum of those who do. Historically, she salutes the absolute dedication to the idea that humans, by their own power, could cover the length of England and Scotland in less than five days' riding time. The record speaks for itself. Dr. Mills, a GP, cycles faster by safety bicycle than for his unbroken record on a penny farthing. His new record, three days, four hours and 46 minutes, in 1895. In 1930, a man who consumes a 100 fresh eggs, 
six quarts of milk, four pounds of sugar, and three pounds of peppermint creams. Rossiter, his name, on an all steel rally. His incredible riding time is two days, eight hours, and fifty minutes. That's averaging a speed of twenty-four kilometers per hour. How on earth did they do it? I'll never know. And Harleko and I, already on our fourth day, are a mere hundred and seventy kilometers from Land's End, distracted by everything along the way. Besides, she reasons, those old-timers didn't have traffic, red lights, roundabouts to deal with. She's conveniently overlooking the early riders having few gears and dirt roads to contend with. Stopping by the Middleton's Museum is a revelation. It's a hobby that just got out of hand, declares Sue. Clearly, it's a labour of love to preserve Britain's history. She laughs amid billboards displaying once proud names of bicycle manufacturers, most of them no longer producing, and still the gramophone goes on grinding out music made even more famous as the theme to popular host Aunt Daisy broadcasting for the New Zealand Broadcasting Service programs projecting her as housewife's friend. She commands vast audiences, unswerving loyalty, open to her opinions and advice. Naturally, nothing lasts forever. Just as Aunt Daisy's good morning, good morning, good morning is no longer heard, the British Cycling Museum has since closed permanently. We're glad to have visited it while we could. We leave Camelford reluctantly. I'm equipped better than before because of a bell recreated in the old style and labelled British Cycling Museum. Harlico bought it for me. By rights, we should be heading north now, over the River Tamar to Devon, but instead we freewheel down to the coastal village of Tindagel, a magical name that's embedded in the legends of King Arthur of his knights of the round table in their search for the holy grail. Join us next week at the same time on Historic Souvenirs, broadcasting currently the serialised book Pedal Power by the late Roy Sinclair on Free FM 89.0, proudly supported by New Zealand On Air.
For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.